0: Hello everyone, this is Mehul Desai and uh, we're back with another episode of the Tantra Podcast. Uh, It has been a while since our last podcast um, and I know as much as there has been a little bit of a wait for this one, what I can promise you uh, is that the wait is definitely going to be worth it. Uh, I have a very uh, special guest today, Aditya Khurjekar, who. uh, who is a very close friend, uh, colleague, uh, with whom I've done a lot of interesting things over the last, I want to say, almost 25, maybe plus years. Um, and so, you know, just fair warning up front, uh, whenever Aditya and I speak, uh, we do tend to ramble. And if that happens today, um, just bear with us. So Aditya, welcome to the uh, Tantra podcast.
1: Thank you, Mehul. I've been looking forward to this, and thank you for the very kind introduction. I, uh, I can't wait to get going.
0: Awesome. No, same here. And we do have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, so for, uh, for our kind of first-time listeners, uh, welcome. As always, uh, we appreciate uh, the gift of time more than anything else. Um, and uh, I would like to spend maybe a few minutes, hopefully not too long, Uh, just to give you a little bit of my background um, and more importantly use that to frame what Tantra does. Uh, So Tantra is a global innovation ecosystem. Uh, Personally, uh, I have spent a little over uh, now 30 years um, deploying technology uh, to solve for interesting problems. At least that's the best way I can frame what I've been up to for the last 30 years. Um, started very early on in the early 90s uh, and by sheer accident got pulled into what the world now calls fintech had an opportunity to work on the first generation digital wallets leading to mobile wallets mobile commerce mobile payment um, and uh, you know that led to solving for secure transactions personalized transactions at large and uh, just like a lot of other things when we started out it would uh, it sounded like it was going to take a couple of years but it turned into A very interesting 20-year journey, uh, which uh, led me literally to every major market around the world. Uh, I got to deploy, build and deploy five generations of technology, uh, build a lot of interesting intellectual property. um, And eventually, when the time came, uh, we had an opportunity to sell that company to MasterCard. And uh, that's what we did. Um, But uh, beyond financial services, retail applications, uh, we also ended up dabbling a little bit in healthcare, a little bit in government services. And in many ways, uh, those first 20 years, almost 20 plus years of my professional life set the foundation for what I've ended up doing since. Uh, Since then, uh, I have uh, set up uh, about 10 plus more companies. Uh, Personally, I enjoy uh, the kind of what I call the zero to 10 process. Uh, take an interesting idea which solves for friction, Um, you know, file patents. I file a lot of patents. Uh, That was the discipline with which we started working, and I continue to do that. I have close to almost 130 patents now issued in the U.S. Uh, So file patents, build products, eventually spin out a business unit. Um, And once the business itself is validated, uh, every aspect of it, uh, in some ways, I kind of look for other folks, other companies to partner with who can essentially take uh, that idea from 10 to 50, 50 to 100, and so on. Um, and I've I've had an opportunity to do this now for you know several different companies. I uh, have um, you know uh, deployed technology in interesting uh, environments uh, once again across most major markets, across several different industry verticals. Uh, And probably the only exception to that zero to 10 is I have had an opportunity also to uh, first build a fintech narrative for a global financial services provider, uh, then help them go public on the uh, London Stock Exchange. Uh, And when uh, an interesting situation came up, I also had an opportunity to preside over that and kind of transition that entity over uh, to a different group. And uh, so I have had varied background over the last 30 years outside of kind of my professional endeavors. I've also dabbled a little bit on uh, kind of the not-for-profit side, if I had to call it that. I support a few different incubators at the University of Chicago. I do some stuff at Marquette University, which is my alma up in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I've also been on a task force, as a matter of fact, with Aditya at the Federal Reserve in the early days of mobile money. And I continue to support a few workforce-related initiatives uh, for the state of Florida, where I now live and work out of. Um, And so that's a little bit of my background. Uh, And as the pandemic hit all of us in 2020, and the world came to a screeching halt, rightfully so, I kind of looked back, and then I started to think, what next? And uh, that is what led to Tantra. And uh, so, over and above individual product ideas and ventures, one of the things which intrigues me is innovation at large. Um, and, like most of us who have been involved in innovation, uh, it largely still comes down to, as I kind of call it, throwing a bunch of things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And obviously, as we all know very well, that's not really very efficient. And so, I started to think about how do you efficiently build innovation? Uh, and then, as a next step, how do you automate parts of innovation, which can be? Clearly, not all of it can. It's always going to be part science and part art. But how can you automate, maybe accelerate parts of innovation, which can be? And then finally, the most important aspect is how can you embed an innovation mindset in the participants? And that has, is what led to Tantra. And so Tantra today, as a global innovation ecosystem, does precisely that. We provide engineering services, we have an incubator, we have a very different kind of venture fund uh, with a very different kind of investment philosophy. Uh, We have an enterprise platform to automate and accelerate innovation across an enterprise or even a larger ecosystem. And on the same platform, we have built an academy uh, to build with a future of work solution to essentially build that innovation mindset, whether it's in employees for an enterprise Uh, you know, or participants uh, in any kind of a large ecosystem. And so Tantra for me is kind of part culmination of my 30 odd years of experience, um, as I like to call it, bouncing around the world, getting to do interesting things and meeting lots of interesting people. But then it's also part sandbox for people like me and Aditya and a lot of the participants who are involved in Tantra today to kind of execute on lots of interesting things that they get to see. You know, just like me, uh, you know, all the participants in Tantra, uh, you know, see a lot of interesting things. We all are entrepreneurs, innovators at heart. And what that means is for us, the glass is always half full. Uh, But clearly, as individuals, there's only so much we can do. And so, the real idea behind Tantra is to kind of provide all these building blocks, provide a global ecosystem, so effectively we can cross pollinate innovation. Uh, You know, effectively, Tantra is based out of the U.S. We have a presence in India and the Gulf. We have a presence in parts of Europe. We have a presence in Singapore. We have a presence in Japan. And so over and above the five kind of building blocks, the idea is to have a truly global ecosystem and a network where we can cross-pollinate the innovation. And then finally, we bring in very consciously domain experts. Uh, Having dabbled with fintech, uh, you know, we have experts for fintech. We also have experts for health tech, for IoT, for supply chain, for new economy. And once again, the idea is to kind of bring in any interesting concept, any interesting venture, uh, any interesting innovation. And uh, unlike kind of the 20 odd years it took me and my colleagues in that first venture from start to finish, the goal at Tantra is to try and help squeeze, compress that 20 years down to 10, 5, possibly even 2. And so uh, that's my background. That's a little bit about what Tantra does. Uh, Very briefly about the podcast series. So till date, we've had uh, several podcasts. Uh, We have talked about design and innovation. Um, We have talked about fintech and kind of what I frame as the holy grail of fintech. Uh, And we've also talked about uh, what we call at Tantra the three Ps of intellectual property, uh, which for us is patents, products, and people saying at the end of the day, you know, intellectual property revolves around really these three legs. And if you build a stool with these three legs, you have something not only highly differentiable, but also scalable, sustainable uh, in its own way. Um, and so as Tantra's global innovation ecosystem, we focus on solutions that will deliver lasting impact. And uh, hence today's episode, as I now kind of pivot over to Aditya, um, is, uh, is going to be a little bit about all of these things. And that's entirely because uh, Aditya has actually done a lot of work in a lot of different areas. I've known Aditya, as I said, at the top of the podcast for almost 25 plus years. Uh, Aditya has a very rich background in technology. Um, you know, when I first met him at Verizon, uh, you know, he had kind of done a lot of work on VLSI chipset design. Um, And had kind of moved over into building a very interesting, uh, you know, uh, ecosystem, uh, along with other carriers, which eventually became uh, probably one of the most ambitious uh, mobile commerce, mobile payment consortiums uh, between the four U.S. carriers. And Aditya and uh, a whole bunch of his colleagues across the carriers were at the heart of that. Uh, From there, uh, he went on to found Money 2020. Uh, and then Medici essentially building probably the world's first real syntax for fintech, uh, and then spent several years at Prove uh, dealing with interesting challenges and opportunities around identity authentication at large. And uh, he's getting ready to now embark on his next interesting journey, which goes to the heart of the topic today, which is AI. And really what I want to uh, discuss with Aditya uh, is, are we there yet? Um, you know, personally, I have seen and worked with kind of three waves of AI. Uh, historians will tell you that there have been five plus waves of AI. And uh, as a true telecom engineer, I kind of always seek out the signal from the noise. And with every wave, there is always an interesting signal. And as can be expected, there's always going to be some noise. And so really what I wanted to do with Aditya, just given his extremely diverse and rich background, and more importantly, given that he has now jumped right into the the kind of, you know, uh, the AI wave that that is very very well upon us now, I really wanted to frame a discussion uh, around, are we there yet? And really, what does this wave mean? And clearly, there will be a lot many more waves to come. And what does, you know, that tell us? And how should we prepare for those? Uh, so with that said aditya over to you um uh, you know i know this took a little longer uh, but uh, uh, hopefully this gives you uh, the right frame up both for tantra uh, as well as the topic
1: on hand well thank you mehul i don't know where to start because there are so many different topics that you that you touched on in there and honestly this feels like You know, one of the conversations that we probably have, you know, every couple of months and at the end of it, we say, hey, that could have been a great podcast. (laughs) So I'm happy that we are actually now doing a podcast uh, with our uh, rambling conversation here. You know, look, I mean, if I were to pick one word from um, everything that you said, let let us pick the word innovation, okay? Because it is one of those overused words that means so many different things to different people but then when you said innovation at large, what does that mean, right? And in my mind, there are so many kind of sub facets to to innovation um, at large, innovation at scale. I guess the first thing that comes to mind, especially because you mentioned AI, is that despite the, the, the narrative of AI swirling around us loudly, In my mind, innovation is human. Innovation is something that makes the human condition better. Innovation is something that humans do uh, proactively as a creative process. And AI just happens to be the current creative process that humans are using in the interest of innovation at scale. And I say it like this because the whole AI narrative seems to have become a little bit polarizing, right? We have people who are scared of AI taking over the world and destroying humans. We have people who are dismissing AI as, eh, what's the big deal? And I think just as with any new technology narrative way of doing things, you know, we we have to take a human first approach to um, making AI work for us, making AI work for the planet, making AI work for, you know, all living things around us. Because at the end of the day, you know, if if we go back to the purpose of innovation, uh, yes, of course, the purpose of innovation is to um, uh, is to uh, have more productivity, is to be able to harness the energy in a more efficient way, is to be able to support societies and uh, organizations uh, that we have built as humankind, you know uh, the notion of capitalism, uh, the notion of democracy, the notion of nation states, the notion of currencies, all of these things stem from innovation. and innovation stems from, in my mind, the human urge, the human instinct to be creative. So, I don't know, this is, this is a fascinating time for us to be in as humans because I would say, you know, for the first time in our existence as humans, we seem to be genuinely anxious about a more superior being, potentially. Uh, trampling us, right? Because so far, we have always thought of ourselves as the most superior species on the planet. For the first time, we are beginning to get scared, oh my goodness, are we creating this AI-powered new species which might not keep us at that most superior spot? So, Again, look. I mean, I just wanted to touch on innovation and um, artificial intelligence, and just kind of kick it off right there. But I'm I'm happy to you know uh, go back into more uh, tangible things. I just I just felt like that was the first thing uh, that came to mind. So reacting to that, Mihul.
0: No, thanks, Aditya. Look, I mean, you you touched upon innovation, and I love the way you frame it, uh, saying anything which impacts and you know the intent is always positive uh, on the overall human condition is a great way of looking at innovation and especially in context of ai uh and let's just call it the the super ego i think is how ai technocrats refer to it uh, kind of what does all of that mean for us and and i promise our audience we are going to come back to this but before we get there um you know, uh, you know, as much as I try to do a little bit justice to your background, I think what would be very helpful uh, to our audience is if you can kind of lay out your journey. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the way I uh, did this once with another close friend who has a podcast series, I love the way he did it, kind of do it in two parts. One is the chronology, uh, but then also kind of the color. Uh, saying that what's the chronology of the journey? I try to ramble that off a little bit, um, really just to get the audience's attention uh, and set their kind of frame of reference. But then if you can add a little bit color in terms of your passion and what really drives you, uh, I, I think that would be a great place for us to start.
1: No, absolutely. Look, I, um, I feel like when we talk... We go into all different areas you know, without warning. So it's good to get back to some structure. And I think that is, that's a big part of what I'm learning uh, you know, over the last 25, 30 years uh, to, to be disciplined about being a businessman because I wasn't born a businessman. I wasn't trained to be a businessman. I was trained to be an engineer. And like almost every other engineer, I have a builder DNA. I have a product DNA. I like to build things, and uh, when I was fresh out of college, I was fortunate to uh, uh, get a job in Bell Labs. Uh, you know, the esteemed organization where you know a lot of our modern inventions um, have come from. Uh, and uh, I became a chip designer. I I was uh, fortunate to have worked with some of the best in uh, uh, you know the whole uh, MPEG. Ecosystem Um, at the time, you know, most people know what MP3 is, right? MP3 is for songs, but some people might not know that MP4, MPEG4, is HDTV, right? Is basically the video uh, format which had to be standardized, and uh, that was my first real job um, after college to to design an HDTV chipset. Which basically took a room full of electronics and compressed that into one chip. That's how we could now decode HDTV signals and see them on our wonderful flat-screen TVs. Um, I enjoyed that process. It was obviously a a builder uh, mindset, which uh, which was uh, what made me, uh, you know, a productive chip designer. But then I'm also an impatient, always. Wanting to do more, kind of a guy, um, always uh, you know uh, not content enough with what I'm doing, and I wanted to do more. And so I started looking at uh, you know how those chips that I had designed uh, fit into systems uh, that customers build with it. It could be TVs, it could be other things, and then that exposed me to uh, the upper layers of the stack, software. Right. Um, I I found myself. Uh, in the software uh, division of Lucent where Bell Labs was at the time. Um, I got into enterprise software, you know, boring billing software, you know, and I say it that way because what people don't realize is that sometimes the most uh, boring, unsexy of technologies at the infrastructure layer um, are the ones that are the most valuable. And I learned that you know firsthand with that um part of my my journey that things that people don't see are sometimes the things that create the most value right think about a phone company or an internet service provider if if they cannot generate a bill they don't get paid there is no revenue if they can't count the transactions um and so i saw the value of infrastructure level innovation uh in that enterprise billing phase of of my career. Uh, And it was a fascinating time because I was able to see firsthand how, um, you know, we have to look at so many different facets um, of what we call innovation, right? Um, I was only used at the time to, you know, technology innovation, but I spent a considerable amount of time in that part of my career in pricing innovation. Because if your customer is not able to afford the fantastic technology that you've built and you are not able to um, get uh, you know, a deterministic revenue stream from that technology uh, based on what the customer can pay for it, then there is no business. And so you have to have innovation um, in pricing. Right? And so I spent some time on that you know and as with everything else every builder i don't think i'm the only one you know we are uh, just always looking to do more and i have i have uh, enjoyed the process of reinventing myself so my next my next chapter was in mobile i uh, i found myself in verizon um after being in enterprise software for some time you know i had a very Uh, you know, (laughs) a very generic uh, job description, job title called device strategy. I don't think even my boss knew exactly what that meant, but I spent um, two or three years at Verizon pretty much being the device strategy guy. And uh, you talked about color, you know, bring some color into uh, my description here. Maybe this quick anecdote will bring some color. Most of my time in this device strategy role was uh, to figure out what features functionality to put in uh, the phones that Verizon bought from our suppliers you know uh, big and small decisions such as um, you know should we put a VGA camera in the phone cost five dollars should we put a Wi-Fi chip in the phone cost five more dollars How about a bluetooth chip in the phone? Oh five more dollars see now it's adding up. can we afford uh, this increase in the cogs of the phone uh, and uh, still be able to make money. And so while we were looking at these these decisions, there were some highly impactful decisions that we were also making. Um, And I'll get back to the color part in a second. But the notion of having an open operating system on a phone in 2004, 2005 was a radical idea. This is before Android, way before iPhone, Right. We had things called things like Symbian back then that Nokia was trying to get into the ecosystem. And we invested energy uh, into uh, looking at how we as a carrier uh, could control the operating system itself so that we could have a bigger say in the ecosystem. And obviously, uh, we failed uh, at that attempt because, you know, the other thing I came to realize is that. Uh, phone companies are service providers they are not necessarily technology innovators because they're not building uh, new tech they are uh, they are using tech innovations from other companies to offer a service uh, to their customer but here's the color part one of the seemingly small things that i enjoyed doing towards the end of that stint at verizon was to bring color Literally into the device portfolio, <laughs> because until two thousand seven, uh, two thousand six, right, the only the only colors in the Verizon device portfolio uh, were uh, black, 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 and maybe a bit of silver once in a while. That's it, and I I literally made this my. Last and enjoyable project in that role, I hired Pantone. paid them $90,000 to make a recommendation to Verizon. Hey, what should be the color of our phone or some of the colors that we should have in our phones in the next year? So talk about color. You know, that seemingly small project, some people might not even call it an, an innovation. But now look around us. How big is color? in the phone that you carry, you make a decision about which color phone you want to buy. And we take that for granted. That was not the case. We take Wi-Fi for granted. That wasn't the case. We take the camera for granted. That was not the case. Only, only, uh, (laughs) you know, 20 years ago. Okay. So I, I, I feel like my, my journey at, Verizon was kind of three pronged. That was the first chapter. Second chapter was portfolio management, you know, an internal operational efficiency job. How do we make sure that we're investing in the right innovations for a company of that size? And then that led to my last gig at Verizon, which was okay, you know, innovation pipeline, great, portfolio prioritization, great, but you know what? Garbage in, garbage out. Small things in, small things out. How do we do big things? How do we innovate at scale? How do we Take that notion that, Mehul, you talked about, which is innovation at large. And we said the way to do that is by, is by going after something that has never been done before, which is a joint venture, a joint venture of the three most competitive companies uh, in the country uh, because we wanted to make mobile payments happen. Imagine what would have happened if, if you tapped your at and phone at a terminal it had a different meaning than tapping a Verizon phone at the terminal versus tapping a T-Mobile phone on the terminal. There would be so much confusion. We said we can't allow that because then the ecosystem will not get built out. So we decided to work together, even though we were competitors, to build uh, the mobile payments joint venture that you talked about, Mehul. And I was I was so fortunate to have been able to work with you on that and the company that you had built at the time and be able to use your Core wallet uh, technology uh, to be able to power uh, the the offering from this joint venture today people know this as Apple pay Samsung pay uh, you know Google wallet Android pay whatever but those were the days when when we put the building blocks um, and the foundation for mobile payments in place um, so then when when I when I was done with that that phase the mobile phase of my life and it wasn't so much of I was done with it, but I felt like the, the builder in me needed a more, um, you know, a more autonomous outlet, so to speak. Um, you know, I was fortunate to have been able to work on a number of different projects, uh, even though I was employed by large companies. But I felt like in 2011-12, uh, it was time to uh, jump into the deep well, as they say, and uh, just go for it. And uh, again, I was I was fortunate uh, to have not drowned in the well. Uh, my uh, first venture after leaving uh, the corporate umbrella of of Verizon was Money 2020. Uh, this is now the largest fintech conference in the world. Uh, there I learned the power uh, and the potential of what we loosely call a platform. So when I uh, now hear Mehul talk about The uh, Tantra platform and the Tantra ecosystem, I know what that means because there is power in bringing people together and harnessing intersections uh, between various uh, different walks of life where people come from, industries where they innovate and mashing them up um, and building something new collectively by forcing that engagement between smart people. So Money 2020 was an eye-opener for me, uh, even though it was just, you know, a conference. I mean, you know, people think, hey, what's the technology innovation in a conference? Well, there isn't. But the innovation is forced by having a platform for smart people to come together and build something new together. That's what led to the next 10 years of what we now call fintech. We were not calling it fintech in 2012. We were calling it mobile payments. We were calling it money. Money2020, that was a cute name uh, that that has, has stuck. But then my next venture after that uh, was for me to take the notion of building a platform. And again, uh, I was I was fortunate to work with Mehul on that and he forced me, you forced me, mehul if you remember, you forced me uh, in the Medici days, which was the next venture, which we launched as Let's Talk Payments. You literally nudged and encouraged and forced me to take a technology platform view at medici not only a research and content and thought leadership view but build uh, something that would scale and the result of that is that after 8 years of publishing content and research and helping vcs and helping startup founders and helping accelerators and incubators and banks and working with you know government bodies and kind of being at the center of that ecosystem, the true value really came from our ability to articulate what was the truly um, scalable, portable, uh, patentable uh, innovation with with long-term value. And, And I think that's where, you know, my learning about what a platform means uh, I think it it was able to go to the next level because um, of what you uh, forced us to do, um, you know, with the platform. So let me just you know wrap this up. Uh, we sold Medici uh, two and a half years ago to prove, uh, prove is in the identity space. Um, identity authentication is what this company does, um, and I have worked on um, a few different things in my last couple of years at Proof, primarily to advance the agenda for Proof into industries and markets where um, where Proof did not play until now. And so my next uh, chapter here is is going to be um, focused on uh, taking identity into the uh, world uh, of content, uh, where that is not a natural market for Proof. Proof is in the Business of helping large financial institutions fight fraud with ID verification, with authenticated ID verification. Content is a very different uh, beast. And so, my next chapter will be to build a new company, uh, Identity.ai, in partnership with uh, Proof, primarily by using Proof technology as a customer uh, and then uh, serving the content authentication ecosystem. Uh, by building tools uh, and technologies um, that will help creators with protecting themselves uh, in the age of generative AI. So let me pause there, Mehul. I know that was uh, a long description. Hopefully I was able to uh, put a little bit of color in there, both literally and f- and f- f- figuratively, but uh, over to you.
0: Well, that was perfect, Aditya. And uh, you know, as you talked about the... Uh... Unsexy aspect of innovation, but yet the essential uh, part of it. uh, The expression which was running in my mind uh, from my mentor, Sam, of course, this is the great Sam Petroda, was uh, people underestimate what it takes to hear a dial tone every time you pick up a phone. Now, unfortunately, this expression uh, will not resonate with our cell phone generation out there, but for folks like you and me who uh, started by picking up a phone back in the day. Uh, we know exactly what it takes—the amount of infrastructure and innovation uh, running literally all around the world uh, and up in space—to ensure that something as trivial as a dial tone is always on every time you you pick up that handset is just unbelievable. And and you know, kind of bringing it a full circle again to uh, you know, you refer to tap and pay now and Apple Pay and Google Pay. You know, once again, I mean, we've been in the trenches and we've we've seen how that plumbing needs to come together. And so now, when the cell phone generation does just, you know, unconsciously many times just tap and pay and move on, uh, you know, hopefully some of them the next time they do it, uh, you know, will pause even for a second to say, hold on, uh, maybe there's a lot going on here every time we we whip out our phone and just tap it at a terminal. So uh, look, lots of fond memories, uh, but, uh, you know, we do need to move on. And uh, so look, uh, you know, before we jump into the deep end of AI, Uh, I have to kind of, you know, get your perspective on really two topics that we have started to talk about here at Tantra. And again, we've not exhausted them. And from time to time, we will come back. But once again, just given your background and and, uh, so much work that you've done uh, over the years, uh, Aditya, how do you relate to kind of what we call the three P's of IP, right? Patents, products, people. You've touched upon this in context of all the stuff you've done. But kind of if you had to... uh, In some ways, share your observations and, you know, if I could be a little bit more obnoxious, educate our audience on how to think about the three P's of IP when it comes to both things as well as processes. What's your perspective?
1: Look, I don't know if I'm the best person to educate anybody. Um, If anybody has educated me about patents, that is you. And hopefully I'm, I'm a decent student here and, you know, you won't give me a bad grade, but my learning, understanding, having spent time with you over the years about patents, is that being aligned, being aligned with yourself on what you're building as a product is not enough. You have to put st- stakes in the ground and make sure that you are able to articulate to the world what you think is special and the way to do that is by taking an intellectual property view of your product energy and memorializing that in patents and you know there are various schools of thought right there's a school of thought which says why do we need to um, invest in all of this patent filing stuff let's just build the product you know sell the product make revenue move on. I think that is, a, um, that is a point of view. I feel like the world has become uh, far more nuanced now, uh, especially okay. with uh, the internet being, you know, central to all innovation and all value creation. And... If the internet has taught us something, if Amazon has taught us something, If Netflix has taught us something, is that, and again, this this continues to happen to the day. I mean, look at the tech innovators of today and how long have they taken to get to revenue? How long has Slack taken to get to revenue? How long did Figma take to get to revenue? How long did Canva take to get to revenue? And you don't get to revenue um, quickly even if you might have a fantastic idea. Even if that fantastic idea is solving a real problem, because the way problems are solved today is not, is not in the old-fashioned way where, you know, let's say you are an architect and you are drawing a blueprint to build a bridge and you get paid X dollars for that bridge to be built and then you go to the next one. Well, That's not how it works. Right now, you know, maybe a loose analogy of that is that, you know, somebody is going to, uh, uh, you know, is going to ask for uh, one micro component of the bridge design and you are going to supply that micro component of the blueprint and get paid for it because there is super specialization in almost every aspect in any industry. No one person, we have come a long way from when individual humans were far more capable than you and me, right? Let's think about this for a second. You know, when, when human beings were roaming around in the jungles and living in caves, and I know I'm kind of characterizing this, but the average human was far more capable and far more productive. Why? Because that person was able to go hunt and gather and eat and cook and take care of things as an individual do far so many more tasks than one average individual can do today okay because we have decided to collaborate and we have decided to become super specialized and what in what we can and cannot do and because we work together as a society that is fine the internet has amplified that process of interdependency Where I'm going with this is that because that is now a very different way of monetizing your invention or idea, I think it has become therefore even more important to focus on intellectual property and patents because there might be a long lead time between your fantastic idea and being able to monetize it. That is, I think, what I have learned from the patent piece of it, Mehul. And please tell me if you give me a passing grade at least on that.
0: Oh, no, you 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 did uh, extremely well, Aditya. <laughs> uh, but look, I mean, uh, I and you know, uh, fintech is so close to your heart, and it's so close to mine. And so I do need to indulge you with one last non AI topic, which is fintech. And I mean, you know, you touched upon this, um, uh, but you've seen this go from you know, something very trivial to, you know, being in the deep end of building a large ecosystem. I remember a time when that uh, carrier consortium uh, was in full steam. I think this was uh, during World Congress, um, uh, GSM, every carrier around the world was interested in uh, mimicking that same model. And, you know, you and I got involved in a few of these, uh, you know, in Asia and other parts of the world. And so you know, kind of having gone from kind of fintech ecosystems to Money 2020, of course, and then onwards to Medici and even Proof. Um, today, fintech is is so broad. You know, I mean, obviously for you and me, we come kind of from that secure transaction, mobile payment, mobile commerce space. Uh, we continue to kind of extrapolate and build upon that towards uh, you know cashless societies sovereign cbdc stable coins and and a whole bunch of things uh, just recently i got pulled in uh, to um, an interesting uh, uh, kind of forum i should say at Marquette university up in milwaukee wisconsin where where i uh, did my masters back in the day uh, where they probably run uh, one of the country's best fintech programs which is focused on uh, the entire on the wealth management side of things uh, it's a very interesting acronym It's called, uh, you know, uh, acceleration of ingenuity in market. So my point is fintech today means so many different things to different people. But most importantly, regardless of what it means, the promise of its impact is very real. Uh, We've experienced it from, let's say, whatever little of fintech you and I have dabbled with. Uh, And clearly, as I get exposed to other aspects of fintech, I can absolutely see how how fintech is so impactful. I mean, it, for me personally, fintech is not a vertical, it's a horizontal. It powers every aspect of society. And so kind of with that little editorial, what is your view of what the holy grail of fintech is? You know, I mean, I, I kind of started off the Tantra Fintech podcast series with that framing, saying that, you know, for me, the holy grail of fintech is to figure out how to normalize the cost of capital. Saying access to capital uh, is now something that most people around the planet can take for granted. But unfortunately, cost of capital is not. So how do you frame the holy grail of fintech given everything that you've seen and done uh, in the space, Aditya?
1: Look, I completely agree with you that fintech is a horizontal, not a vertical. Absolutely Um Absolutely aligned with the way I look at fintech. You know, when we were uh, trying to explain uh, kind of the the fintech um, power, the potential, the promise. You know, we would say, hey, we should look at fintech as kind of inter inside. Every company is going to have fintech inside. Right? You won't even know that fintech is what is um, you know causing this value creation, but it will be inside as An enabler as the accelerator of uh, value creation within any organization, any industry, and that is exactly what we are seeing today. That's exactly what we are seeing today. And I think if I were to just stay at kind of this 200,000 foot level for a little bit more, one of the way the way I see it is that essentially fintech is removing friction. Uh, In value movement, I could say money movement, but let us just say value movement because even money can be a little bit constraining. Okay, so I don't want people to think of money as only currency, any value, right? Because in the old days, value moved by you handing over, you know, uh, a pouch of gold coins to another person. Then we we started, you know, moving value by, you know, having uh, a contract that enabled us to, uh, you know, send a SIFT code from bank to bank and a dip, and a debit and a credit on it, on either side. Okay, so value moved faster, right? So I think I think the the main point of of increase in value movement velocity is to uh, get the Uh, multiplier effect, right? So economists, um, so at least when I went to business school, which was 20 plus 20 25 years ago, right? uh, I remember the the multiplier ratio of 1.6, right? Or something like that, which means that, you know, your your ability to generate GDP uh, depends on how much money is in circulation. I don't know what the current number is, but that is the frame in which I see it. If fintech is able to make value movement um, more efficient, cheaper, faster, frictionless, then that multiplier. Why should that stop at 1.6? Why can that not be 16 or 160? Now, what does that mean then for GDP? Now, now, for us to say that hey, we can you know triple, quintuple. You know GDP growth for a country or for the world because of fintech innovation. Now that doesn't sound you know that that fantastic. That's something. Oh, okay, yeah, of course, makes sense. Okay, that is the power of fintech. In my mind, that's how I frame it from a top-down level.
0: I absolutely agreed, and and fascinating. And I I agree with you. I think it's the exchange of value, and uh, as I like to kind of uh, think about it. Uh, in the current context, uh, we can stretch exchange and we can stretch value, as in, to your point, uh, there is no reason why we need to limit or constrain how we think about exchanging and how we think about defining value, and that just leads us down, you know, so many different permutations and combinations. And uh, frankly, for me, just like you, that is that is essentially what uh, the real objective of FinTech is. Uh, But look, I I think it's time we need to really move on to AI. I mean, as I briefly mentioned earlier, my first brush with AI was kind of just taking a fuzzy system, taking a neural network, putting it together, and building an expert engine to drive whatever the task was on hand. And since then, obviously, we've come a long, long way. Um, And uh, given where we are today, at least it feels like... um, and as as a technocrat, I think there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of disservice there to the pureness uh, of AI and the capability of AI. But it does seem like that the flavor of the day today is really content. When anyone thinks about AI in the current context, they immediately start thinking about large language models and what it can do for the essays I'm putting together. And maybe if I were to kind of stretch it a little bit, content at large. Um, but what I would really love uh, uh, from you, Aditya, and really for the benefit of our audience, is kind of how you view AI. Uh, and then kind of if you can bring it uh, into a full circle to the current flavor of the day, which is an important one. Um, and obviously it goes to the heart of what I understand you have embarked on and, and soon will be kind of, you know, taking forward in full force. Uh, but then the part which really intrigues me um, just given my background, is what does AI do to very fundamental things, which is identity, authentication, and eventually personal, seamless, secure transactions? Uh, Clearly, there is a lot that AI has already started to do in terms of impacting this both positively and maybe not so much positively. uh, But you know kind of what is the what is the impact of AI on all of this? I mean the content piece is kind of where we seem to find ourselves today, uh, but where does this take us as we start thinking about the impact of AI on identity authentication and secure transactions at large?
1: So uh, maybe you know just very briefly I, I should I should just talk about how I Think about AI historically, right? And again, I'm not the expert by any means, but you know this context might be helpful for people to interpret you know my, my comments. You don't have to agree with me or disagree with me. but look, AI is not a new thing, right AI, even with that terminology, is at least 70 something years old, right? You know People have worked on AI. For a while um, in a variety of forms we have seen the benefits of ai for many years already we just didn't call it that uh, so clearly um, you know this might be like i don't know the third or the fifth you know coming or recoming of <laughs> of ai coming to the fore i and you know if you if you look at what benefits AI has given us in our experiences on Amazon when we are getting recommendations for, you know, which, uh, you know, toothbrush to buy next or uh, in in Google search, you know, even before kind of the current uh, barred, uh, you know, powered uh, uh, options that Google search gives us, you know, things on the internet have been AI powered. It's just that we didn't, Call it that, or see it that way, and like you said, what is different today is that AI has gone mainstream, just like fintech went mainstream over ten years, right? I mean, we saw that you and I saw that firsthand, right in you know in two thousand seven eight nine you we were right we were calling it mobile payments and then 2011, 12, with the conference, you know, I started seeing that, hey, this is way more than payments. And then in 2014, 15, everybody was, uh, you know, a fintech thought leader and nobody knew what fintech meant. And we, we took the time to define what fintech is. And then, you know, fast forward to, you know, 2000, uh, let's say 2019, 2020. Uh, right, We started seeing fintech IPOs and fintech being like, uh, you know, a, a mainstream uh, part of consumer jargon on the front pages of national newspapers. AI is going through a similar, you know, mainstreamization, so to speak. It is now in the consumer vernacular, uh, you know, <laughs> My parents, uh, close to eighty years old now, can ask me about, hey, what is this LLM thing? I said, all right, okay, do you know what an LLM is, huh? And it's uh, it's fascinating, right? AI, in some sense, you could say that AI is happening really fast. I mean, everything has happened in AI in twenty twenty three. Sure, you could you could say that, but that is true only for the content LLM. Piece of AI. AI is, has a far richer history than that. But great, here we are, right? Uh, what does that mean? What does what does the the current you know wave of of AI around us mean? I I, I saw this statistic somewhere, or I heard it, uh, which I, I have to believe is true. It came from you know far uh, far more uh, you know qualified person than me that the human brain takes about 20 watts of power okay in 20 watts the human brain is able to do tasks far more precisely and productively and efficiently than one gives it credit for how much power how much power does AI take an LLM model take, chat GPT take to do that same action that a human could do in 20 watts. My feeling is it's it probably takes kilowatts or megawatts of power to do the same thing that the human brain can do in 20 watts. Okay. So why am I saying this, right? I think that is just a reminder for us that back to your question for the podcast series or for this podcast, are we there yet? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We are so early in the process. So early, right? When we can get that AI to do the same thing that the human brain can do in 20 watts, then I will say we are getting there. We are far from it, right? Now, the reason to acknowledge that is to prevent us humans from stopping the potential too soon. So, for example, if we regulate too much too soon, if we start uh, you know, cutting back on the experiments that are happening in the AI world too soon, right? if we jump to conclusions about the dangers of AI too soon, we will be doing ourselves a disservice because we will not have let this new technology flourish enough back to our point of innovation to make our human condition better so it's important to realize that we are in the very very early days okay let me pause there i I want to answer your question about identity and authentication but i don't know if you agree with me mehul i just feel like we should not think that we are already kind of doing fantastic things with AI. We are barely getting started.
0: No, I, I absolutely agree, Aditya. And I love the way you uh, you brought up the context of the human brain. As a matter of fact, I will be quoting you extensively every time I now have to talk about AI. And, you know, I, I find myself in different forums just like you. And increasingly these days, the audience, uh, you know, wants to know more about AI. And I, I remember once someone kind of brought up AI in context of, uh, do you think it's going to destroy us as humans and take away all of our jobs? And, and so th- the best way I could kind of answer that, that concern, really, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't just a question, it was a genuine concern. I said that, look, none of us were around when humanoids stumbled upon fire. Uh, but we all were around. And I said, I don't want to age you or anyone else in the room, but we all were around when computers first came upon us. And I remember the exact same concern coming up at that time as well. And let's fast forward where we are today. And it's, let alone taking over, it's very much part of our life now. And for me, that's exactly what what AI is. And frankly, any technology that we will develop in the future. And so, yes, I absolutely agree with the way you think about it. Um, you know, I don't see us being there in our lifetime and that is absolutely fine. And that's exactly how we need to approach it.
1: Look, I mean, I think, I think having, having a long-term view of things is, is so important. I, I just learned about this. I did not know it was happening. Apparently Jeff Bezos is building a 10,000 year clock somewhere in the desert. Okay a 10000 year clock and the reason he's doing it is to remind people that you know let's take a long term view of things <laughs> great idea okay i don't know if you need to go build a clock in a mountain somewhere for that but it's a great reminder and uh, look i think you know coming back to coming back to your question about identity and you know why i am building identity.ai uh, is it's it's really to uh, you know, take uh, take this notion of um, AI-powered, uh, AI-generated uh, opportunities and problems and uh, find a way to solve them, right? Because, you know, it, it, just as AI is going to um, create new opportunities and uh, give us new discoveries and innovations, um ai is also going to create new problems that will require that will be required to solve or ai uh, could amplify existing problems uh, because of the pace and ubiquity at which ai can generate content and so that is exactly what we are doing here with identity.ai so really you know What we want to address is two main things uh, which um, which are related to content in the age of generative AI. One is value attribution. What does that mean? When you are looking at something or reading something or listening to something, how do you trust what you are looking at or listening to or reading? How do you know whether you should trust it or not? How do you know if it is authentic? Now, this problem is an age old problem, right? It is not a new problem, but AI makes this problem urgent and important and bigger because we all know what fake news is. We all know the impact of fake news we all know that elections can be stolen, won, lost uh, because you know information wrong information, bad information uh, can be disseminated easily in fact created easily with AI and disseminated you know easily because of you know social media and internet and all the tools that we have out there, AI can even accelerate the dissemination of it so We feel like it is urgent and important and timely to be able to address the question of content authenticity um, and uh, being being, um, able to... for, For a consumer of content, the consumer should be able to quickly know where something came from. Now, that is actually not enough. Okay, It's not enough for me to know That, uh, you know, this picture I'm looking at uh, came from, um, you know, came from a Canon camera. What does that do for me? Well, how about if I tell you that this picture that came from a Canon camera was edited in Photoshop? Okay. I know something more. What? Maybe if I can tell you that this picture that came from a Canon camera was edited in Photoshop at so-and-so time in Princeton, New Jersey all right you're giving me a little bit more information but that still doesn't tell me can i trust that information okay our thesis is that with or without ai humans trust humans so what i really want to know when i'm looking at this picture that you're showing me is who is the human who was behind this picture whether or not it was edited Whether or not you used a camera or a pinhole camera, whether or not you used an AI editing tool to make it look fancier, I want to know if Mehul Desai took this picture or Mickey Mouse took this picture. If you tell me Mickey Mouse took this picture, chances are I won't trust it. If you tell me Mehul Desai took this picture, you know what, I'm going to trust that picture. No matter what tools Mehul Desai used. Okay. So that is the first problem that we are addressing, the notion of trustability and trustability with a human-centric approach, part one. The other problem which we are addressing is uh, uniquely coming from AI, which is AI being data hungry. An AI model uh, is able to do what it does by training itself from anything that it it can get its hands on. And that's exactly what the LLMs have done. LLMs have trained themselves on everything that they could get their hands on on the internet. And now they are impressing you by regurgitating, you know, in beautiful language, what they have learned from everything that they ingested and trained the models on. Wonderful, right? Well, if you are now a creator, an author, a painter, a designer, an illustrator who put your blood and sweat and energy and time into creating a beautiful creation and an AI model just trained itself on it and somebody else just now told the model, hey, create me a painting in the style of Mehul Desai. How do you feel? Now, that is where our technology is also going to um, put that control into the creator's hand is my creation available for training or not okay and we want to make that a technology cho- or a technology solution with the with the creator in control as opposed to some kind of a regulation legal court court interpreted notion of what is allowed and what is not allowed no matter which way the chips fall on that. Because there's a school of thought which says, everything that you do is inspired by something else. Sure. I made this painting. I was inspired by five other paintings I saw last week. Sure. So that school of thought says, what's the big deal? AI is just getting inspired by Mehul's work. Why is Mehul so upset? What we are saying is, without getting into that philosophical debate, As technology innovators, we are building a technology that gives Mehul the opportunity to say, yes, you can be inspired by my stuff or you cannot be. It's my choice because I created it. So this is what I mean by human centric approach to solving the uh, content authentication and content, uh, the content provenance issues. Uh, that we are going to deal with in the age of generative AI. That is what AI uh, is doing.
0: Well, thanks, Aditya. And, uh, look, I mean, you know, clearly we've only literally scratched the surface. And, uh, you know, uh, what goes without saying is we would love to have you back on the podcast uh, to talk more about, uh, you know, what you have started to work on um, and and kind of come and kind of bring the tactical nuts and bolts aspect of all of that back for the benefit of our audience. But uh, before we wrap up today, I do want to kind of spend a little bit time um, uh, touching upon kind of the strategic or philosophical aspect of of AI. And uh, so, in your case, uh, you know, you you referenced an interaction with your parents. In my case, it was actually with my 11 and a half, you know, soon to be 12-year-old boy. Uh, it was actually a few years ago um, when he first brought up AI. And, wow. uh, you know, we were just chatting about something and he's like, Dad, you know, the AI beat me today, but I'm going to figure out how to beat the AI. <laughs> and I said, hold on, where, where did you hear that word? I mean, what do you mean? I mean, uh, what do you know about AI? And he's like, "Come on what do you mean? How do I know? You know it, you know, I, I play against the AI all the time with my games. And so I, I bring up this example. Um, uh, so for me, the future is not off AI. The future is with AI. And the reason why I, I say this is for people like us, with all due respect to people like us, you and me included, uh, for us. The future is with AI, as in we're building something and we're going to keep building stuff around it. But what the interaction with my son did is it opened my eyes saying that for them, AI is actually a person with them in the room. Uh, They they are absolutely comfortable with that. It's almost uh, that little thing on your left shoulder and your right shoulder, and it's constantly speaking to you and it's telling you, what to do, what not to do. This is right. This is wrong. Sometimes it kind of gets out of back. And and for me, that was in some ways kind of an aha moment around AI, where I said that, look, this is not, a you know, we don't have to worry about what is it going to do? Because our kids, as they grow up, they are not only going to be comfortable, they will absolutely figure out how to work with this. And so, with that said, uh, for me, the short term issue is this whole light regulation topic right You touched upon it earlier, and uh, obviously the the Europeans uh, have put something out there, but in typical european style uh historically at least uh, they kind of try to forecast problems and build regulation uh, I personally uh, and no you know no points for guessing why, but I personally like the u s approach, which is you know, don't do that because all you'll do is constrain innovation, you know, as and when a problem comes, okay, we'll deal with it. And uh, obviously, there's a very different philosophical aspect of how to deal with regulation because of that attitude that we all have here in the US versus our friends, uh, you know, on the other side of the pond. But bottom line is, I, I think this aha moment for me of this isn't about, you know, a future, you know, off, it's a future with. Aditya, what does that mean to the immediate issue of regulation, the U.S. approach versus the European approach? Let's just kind of broadly put it that way. But then more importantly, for me, the long-term issue of disparity, because I can already see it. We're, we're starting to see, just like you know for so many other things, two camps developing, one which is for AI, the other one which is against AI, which I don't even think is feasible. Uh, But what it's going to do is it's going to drive disparity. It's going to drive disparity in terms of those who have access to technology and computing capability and power, to your your earlier point, uh, versus those who don't. It's also going to drive disparity between people who think this is critical versus those who think it's not. It's going to drive disparity between people who say, I'm designing a thing versus people who say, no, this is going to be with me all the time. So kind of what are your thoughts on the short-term aspects of something as quote-unquote critical, but yet trivial like light regulation versus the long-term aspect of disparity uh, that AI could potentially drive?
1: Wow, Um, you're right. I think this this might need us to uh, get back on another Podcast recording, and you know, even if I, I I were qualified to answer these questions, I I think that is another long conversation. But let me let me give you some quick thoughts here, so that this doesn't become like one of those Lex Friedman three four hour things, right? We should <laughs> we should probably um, uh, you know uh, keep it contained. My feeling is the following: maybe two or three kind of quick reactions, right? Um, yes the danger of disparity is not just danger it's happening it has happened internet was supposed to uh, was supposed to uh, be kind of that democratizing platform well yes but it actually increased disparity in the last 25 years not decreased it on average the human condition has gotten better but disca- but the, dis- the disparity has also increased and I think AI is going to continue to do that. It will accelerate that. So, you know, I don't know if I, as an individual, um, can can do anything uh, concrete except for what I think is is, um, encouraging is let's look at some of the green shoots of the recent years. Let's look at kind of the i'm going to call it the web 3 movement okay because you know it 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 reminded us of certain things it reminded us that individuals can uh try and take back control uh of their um data of their uh, value creation of how they want to monetize their time and their energy the the Um, you know the creator economy as they call it you know we went from calling it a gig economy to a creator economy i think i think that is that is encouraging to see that right kind of the power coming back to the people so to speak you know saying it metaphorically but also a little bit literally and i guess the last uh, piece there you know related to what where i spend a lot of time on is what we in the industry call self-sovereign identity and you will relate to this in the in the context of digital wallets right I mean we are we are already seeing you know people wanting and finding ways to take back control and that is why you know our small very very small way of addressing this is by giving people tools okay so we look at identity.ai as a tool, for individuals to try and take back some of that control by saying, nope, I'm going to check the box and a model cannot train on my back. Uh, nope, I'm not allowing my full name to be displayed you know, to any random person who wants to know who did this work. I choose to be anonymous, right? Uh, nope, I don't want to give up the rights to this piece of creation. Um, you know, just because uh, I uploaded it Uh, to a social media platform. I still own it and the value attribution comes to me. So in my mind, in these small ways, with such practical tools, we are able to um, give people an ability uh, to to deal with these challenges, even if it's in a micro format in a segment of the industry. And I feel like the more of such empowering tools that will get created the better of a chance we will have of addressing uh, the dangers of disparity because of AI.
0: No, you're absolutely right, Aditya. We will, we will have to come back and revisit this, but uh, look, as they say, all good things must come to an end. I think it's time for us to wrap up. Uh, I have to start uh, by thanking you, Aditya, for your time and consideration and uh you know we wish you all the very best for this uh, new and exciting journey that you have already kicked off and and you're kind of getting ready to you know jump right into um and uh, would uh, would very much love for you to keep coming back uh, to the podcast and to our audience um you know as as you have more interesting perspectives to to kind of report back with but i also want to take this opportunity to thank our audience uh, as i said earlier uh, you've given us the most precious gift, which is of your time and your attention. We never take that for granted. So thank you very much. Uh, as always, uh, the team here at Tantra will uh, will publish a white paper as well uh, on the podcast. And uh, stay tuned for uh, the next podcast. Uh, until then, uh, happy innovating and Godspeed to
1: all of you. Thank you, Mehul. I enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you to you and the Tantra team and to the audience. I really enjoyed this uh, last hour. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Aditya.
0: As as always, a pleasure. Uh, And uh, as promised to our audience, we absolutely rambled on. But I I think there was some method to the madness. And I'm sure everyone out there will appreciate it. But uh, thanks once again to you and to everyone else out there.
1: All right. Bye now.